What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sundays. I'm your host, Corey Sylvester Murray. We're talking about generational wealth. We're talking about finance. And of course, we're talking about business. It's a Black Man Sunday. Time to put all childish things away. I refuse to be the man I was yesterday. Gotta put my best and before we introduce today's guest, my man Eric from Huntsville, Alabama, who do you have for our Black Men Sunday Spotlight? Hey, thanks a lot, Corey. Um, today we're going to talk about someone who we should know, if we don't already know him, already know of, and this guy's name is uh, Paley, the uh, great soccer star. And, you know, the interesting thing about a little tidbit about him, did you know when, uh, like you say, Paley was one of the greatest they have graced the field. Uh, people are bound to want to know a piece of you. So with that being said, they wanted any piece of Pele that they could, which was exactly the logic behind Puma's approach with Pele during the 1970 FIFA World Cup in the midst of the company's sneaker war against Adidas. They had this big sneaker war. So in the quarterfinals between Brazil and, and Peru, Pele was wearing Puma's football boots. And in the opening of the match, he, he intentionally requested that the referees stop the clock so that they could stop and tie them up, knowing full well that all eyes were watching him. Now, as expected, the cameras pulled focus on Pele, and as he unlaced his straps on his boots, his Puma boots, thereby creating what is arguably the world's first viral promotion. Quite a nifty uh, publicity boost for the sneaker brand. Though this did exactly come cheap. So I just want to give a shout out to Pele. You know, may he rest in peace. That's my spotlight for today. And now back to you. Yeah, I was going to say, man, welcome back to Eric. You missed you the last couple of weeks. Brothers were saying, man, I heard the show. Y'all ain't had no spotlight. I was like, listen, if it ain't coming from Hunts Vegas, it ain't happening. So, hey, Eric, we missed you and glad you back, bro. And thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Now let's go on and introduce today's guest. We have Anthony Simmons. If you go back two episodes ago, financial tech helping veterans with wealth when we had Denzel and Brandon on the show. If y'all heard that episode, Brandon said his frat brother convinced him to join his organization that this brother is in the banking, has a banking background. So these brothers merged their businesses. So I said, oh, we got to get this brother on the show. So we have Anthony Simmons. Anthony Simmons, welcome to Black Men Sundays, brother. How you doing? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely, man. And as I alluded to in the beginning, you're Brandon McLean's frat brother. Let me just run down this brother's resume real quick. Because we had Brandon and Denzel on from the Nomuro Global Foundation. All right. This brother's the president and CEO of the Nomuro International Corporation. Namiro SRL in the Dominican Republic. This brother is also set up in the Commonwealth of Dominica, RPAAS Corporation. This brother's the one with the uh, banking and financial background. You know how brothers say, yeah, man, I want to be the CEO. I got the offshore accounts. I got the connects. This dude really has that. He's got offshore banking relationships. This brother does merchant processing, mobile app solutions. And this brother's affiliated with uh international banking programs this all this brother also has a background with political organizations i'm talking about the president bill clinton administration state representatives governors and senators so let's go on and get this thing started man because you also had contractual relationships with coca-cola enterprise pepsi bottling group and and detroit public schools so i just want to make people understand the, the level that we have on this show today man so you know, Anthony Simmons, let's go on and get started. You convinced Brandon to join your organization. You were, you had a movement of money in the minority community. So let's just talk about that. Talk about that conversation you and Brandon had and how you convinced him, because I'm pretty much convinced with your resume. <laughs> well, let me, let me start a little bit by, back on my background. Um, as you mentioned, I, I was in politics for 25 plus years with the Clinton administration. And then I went over to the state of Michigan. I've always been in the legislative uh, administrative side of the government. Uh, I was an appointee for several administrations. And then I went to, like I said, um, uh, to the state of Michigan. And then in 2008, I was asked by the president of the Dominican Republic uh, to come and help him with public private partnerships. And the reason that kind of happened and changed my mind is because when I was in government, 
my side hustle was doing businesses that were, were considered uh, underserved markets. When you talk about my backgrounds with Coca-Cola, people don't realize, and, and it always say your network, your net, your net worth is worth is worth your network. And so my contacts have always been phenomenal. I, you know, I knew Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and these guys, and I was a third-party uh, vendor for them, where I was setting up vending machines all over the United States and getting paid, and they were doing all the work. And people didn't realize that. And so I just kind of parlayed those relationships into other business opportunities. And then in um, 2008, when I was asked to come international, I started to see truly how money moved. One of the things we are never taught in the Black community, and like I said, one of the, I'm sure we always have these conversations, we don't talk money at the dinner table. My family was one of those. They didn't talk money. But, but we always wanted to know what was the next step to obtaining you know, generational wealth. Well, I saw it when I went to other countries. I saw how money moved through Western Union, through MoneyGram. I mean, we're talking three companies control close to $800 billion moving from the United States and across the globe. And, and let me say, let's start by saying this. I realized at that point in time, there were no African-Americans involved in that money movement. And I thought that was absolutely bananas. I said, how is it that we are 80% are of the globe and minorities and, and, and color, but we don't control any of the wealth? And so I then started to turn my sights onto uh, financial services. And I applied for, in 2013, I applied for ISO program manager for MasterCard International. And I was one of the first African-Americans with my business partner to purchase an international BIN sponsorship from MasterCard International. And we were introducing that to the Dominican Republic. We bought 10,000 uh, prepaid debit cards. It was called QPay. And we were introducing this to create a cross-border platform. Um, and, 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 and quickly about that story, uh, people always talk about the rush card. And if you know about the rush card, rush card was a prime opportunity for the underserved community in the United States. But what people didn't realize is that Russell Simmons was just a face. He was just a promo man. They was paying him a commission to promote the product. The bank who actually owned the card was First Data. First Data was one of the largest companies in the world. Y'all know them by Pfizer right now, but they were one of the largest companies in the world that was giving out debit cards to the urban community. So people didn't realize who it was. They thought it was Russell Simmons. It wasn't Russell Simmons. It was a white bank that was giving it out. But Russell made money. They had 4 million clients and they were moving a lot of money until the platform got shut down because one day the, the, the bank decided they didn't want to pay out the urban markets anymore and they just close everything. And that's what made Russell Simmons and the rush car shut down. So I said, you know what? Hold on. I don't want to be Russell Simmons. I want to be the bank. <laughs> so I went and searched for an international platform that we could do. We did that. And we launched uh, in Dominican Republic. We launched in uh, Aruba, uh, Curacao, and about six other countries. We were very successful. And then MasterCard came back to us and said, because you all are doing so well, we want you to buy licenses in various countries and each country you go in. Now, let me explain this game, gentlemen, and you want to talk about money. Each one of our MasterCard licenses cost $750,000. $750,000. Remember, I was in six countries. Imagine coming up with that kind of money, going to your friends and family and saying, hey, lend me X number of dollars to come up with this kind of plan. Most of us don't have it. We don't even know where to go, and banks won't lend it to us. Because think about this, and let me make a second caveat. Of the nine existing Black-owned banks, none of them are card issuers. They can't even issue their own debit cards. So they don't know how to play this game. So I had to go out and find somebody who can help me play and understand this market. I got a Harvard education with MasterCard International, believe it or not. Um, from then we did that, and then I took our game over to Dubai with the Dubai government, the UAE government. Uh, Khalifa bin Zayed, the, the, the president, he wanted to create a special car for his dad. Uh, when you talk about uh, Dubai Expo, Expo 2020, we was creating a car for that. I actually have examples of it. And then COVID hit. Well, of course, COVID changed everything. Um, in the process, I said, you know what? I've learned enough. I paid enough. Cards only was going to have another five-year shelf life. So what I said was, you know what? I can replicate the whole MasterCard, Visa, American Express rail for uh, underserved communities, but do it all through mobile apps. That's the way of the world. If you know Cash App and Zelle has been around for since 2006, 2007, some have been about 10 years, but what people don't realize is that they are tied to United States. They cannot move outside of the US. So they cannot, you can, you know, you got Cash App and Zelle, you can't move money from Florida to Jamaica. 
So it doesn't work because they can't onboard clients. So I said, you know what? That's an opportunity for us. And that's how Namiro came about. I came up with the concept of recreating what I already knew, knew in the next steps in the next generation of mobile banking technology. And I created Namiro International Corporation, which now has a functioning mobile banking app to serve communities that can be served now through cross-border remittance and peer-to-peer -peer solutions. And that's what we've done. And that's what I convinced Brandon of because he had asked me, he said, man, how can you don't talk about this? I said, you know, brother, believe it or not, you know, you can't talk about money with everybody. It just doesn't work. And a lot of us don't understand, you know, how money uh, functions because in the black community, we may move money from Georgia to Alabama or New York to California. But when you're talking to, you know, migrants or other people that are from other countries, that's a different conversation when you're talking about moving money from, from Orlando to Botswana. <laughs> that's a serious solution. And that's the market we wanted to be in because I, I learned through the Haitian community, Dominican population, and through those in Nigeria and Kenya and Sudan, there was a lot of money being moved and none of us were playing that game. They didn't look like me or you. And so I wanted to get in that and that's what we're now doing. Definitely. And what we're talking about, uh, fintech or financial uh, technology, a lot of that is definitely through e-commerce. So for the brothers out here that are listening and that are saying, listen, I have an idea for an app. Can you just give some tips for as far as from the app building perspective? And then we'll get back into the banking. The the key is, is, is you can build an app. It's not about building the app alone. It's also about protecting your idea. One thing I teach brothers all the time, you can't process or you can't patent an idea but you can patent a process and that's very critical. And so when you hear the white boys in Silicon Valley talking about, do you own your IP? What that means is do you own your intellectual property? That means have I created something that's so unique that I can patent it? And that's what the value of our company is all about. We talk about, you know, it's not about just having an app to show, you know, the hottest party or the latest trend of clothes or whatnot, or the latest beauty supply line. It's about, do you own the process that comes with that, the entire vertical? And that's what I like to talk about, because if you're not, if you're not the bank, if you're not the processor, if you're not the issuer, if you're not the, 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 the provider or on all levels of certain things, you still are just a salesman. You make a couple of dollars. You're still working, but you're working for somebody else. The key is to create those verticals so they all intertwine, and then that gives the overall result of a true successful model. Definitely. And when we're talking about those verticals, um, for the brothers that are listening that really want to dive in, what advice would you give them as far as for a brother that's just trying to get started? A brother's just trying to get started. I, I always tell people do three things. And I was, and I was mentioning this early on. I tell people first things first, incorporate your business. Um, I teach brothers, you know, it's not just enough to incorporate in, uh, in your state because some states do not protect concepts or ideas for FinTech or financial services. There's two states you always want to incorporate in three at the most you want to incorporate in Delaware, if you can afford it, because Delaware corporations are all publicly traded companies are Delaware based corporations. They are the first to be looked at for investment banking and anybody wants to actually acquire a company. Delaware Corp is number one. Number two, Wyoming, because Wyoming corporations are very big and protected in technology services. They've actually created legislation that protect those companies and you do not have to pay taxes as long as you never open up or operate in the state of Wyoming. Third would be the state of Nevada. Nevada is the third state that has also similar uh, FinTech protections because they've done that to protect gaming. That's how sports betting came about because of Nevada. <laughs> Nevada sports betting, they don't pay taxes no matter wherever they open up these sports betting operations. Because think about it, gentlemen, when you're playing, when you're betting on, on Super Bowl Sunday through sports bet or King bet and all these King things, if these guys had to pay taxes in all the countries they, they did that app in, it, they would never be able to operate. So Nevada has created laws where those those economics or those fintechs or those money movement platforms are are able to operate without paying taxes. Okay, great. And also for brothers that are listening as well, how you know, like I said, brothers always say, "Yeah, I got the offshore set up. I'm a CEO." How can brothers really set up the offshore banking relationships? I am so glad you asked that because that is one of the first things I teach brothers. 
you know, like brothers come down to Dominican Republic all the time. I, you know, when I tell brothers, when you visit another country, go look at how the money is moving in that country. You know, don't look at the tourism side because that's what they want you to see. Tourism is a momentary thing. Look at what the people are doing. Look at how they're banking. Look at how they're spending money. Are they buying groceries on a daily basis? Are they buying them at super or at, at, at Costco's for the week? You know, understand what the flow looks like and then try to go get in that flow. I tell everybody, every country you visit, go to the local bank and see if you can set up a bank account. You know, most banks with a United States passport, you can open up a bank account very easily. Most people don't realize that. As an American citizen, these banks love and welcome our participation, but we don't know about it. So we never do it. You All you got to do is take your passport in, tell them, hey, I want to open up a, a little savings or a checking account. You, They probably can use the address of your hotel, which most of us do. And then pretty much they will issue you a bank account. And that way you will actually be able, and then start moving some money into it. Start playing the game. Start seeing how it's going, what your money looks like when you get their app and you send $100 or $200 a month to your offshore account. You can play that game. They'll do it, give you a W-9, or they may have what they call IRS reciprocity, which means you do not see a report based upon the funds you send overseas. That's the game that others have played. And remember, we're late to the party. You know, remember, offshore money movement has been going on since 1933 when they changed the laws through FDR, because that's when offshore banking and the gold standard changed. That's when Switzerland became popular. That's when, you know, white boys been moving money into these trusts all over the world. But we didn't know anything about the game. You know, we're just now understanding because we got two nickels to rub together, but we're trying to figure it out. The key is we got to share information. I have bank accounts in seven countries. And the reason I've done that is because at the end of the day, I want to have the ability to move and be liquid at any given time in case the United States economy collapses. Because remember, at the end of the day, if the United States economy collapses, there's going to be victims and there's going to be winners. I guarantee you, the majority of those that are in the 1% are going to be the winners. And those that are stuck who haven't moved in their money, relying on traditional U.S. banks to save them with FDIC, you're in trouble. Mm, that's what I'm talking about. And also, I see you're also fluent in Spanish. So for <laughs> brothers out there that want to set up internationally how important is it to be fluent in other languages i i tell people in in school I, i'm gonna tell you this is so funny <laughs> I'm, i was a c student in, in college i was a c student i had no problems on the thank you lordy plan but what happened was after soon i got out of college i realized that i needed to bulk up into certain things got got real good at understanding laws of other countries. How do you operate? How does the embassy move? How does this happen? I learned the local language, something I can learn pretty fast. If it's not French or if it's not Spanish or if it's Arabic or Chinese, yeah, learn one of those languages if you want to do business or, or the local dialect if you're in Africa um, and become a student of it. You know, don't just sit there and play with it, really practice it and practice it on a professional level. Because what I tell people all the time is other languages do business the way we do business. They just do it in their own language and culture. And as long as you understand that, you absolutely be successful. Because I've done this in, like I said, several countries, and it's, I didn't understand Arabic when I went. I can't even read Arabic. But when they stick a contract in your face and put some numbers up there, guess what? You start to learn real quick, and that's when the game changes. Hey, fellas, stage is open if y'all got any questions, man, because I feel like I'm out the Ivers in this thing, but y'all go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. This is Kalali out of Maryland. I got a couple questions for you, man. Go ahead. Um, just listening to, to everything you're saying, um... Um, I, I did hear you. You started off with like a political background and a, with a political background. Um, do you think, or or how do you think politics impact the ability of minorities to generate wealth? You know, I love that question. Um, believe it or not, I was one of those people that didn't, you know, as a young kid, didn't understand politics at all. Uh, my my grandfather, who was a migrant from uh, Trinidad, he is actually uh, was the first black. Uh, Parks and Direct Re, Parks and Rec director for for the city of Detroit, Belle Isle Park. If anybody knows Belle Isle, Belle Isle is the largest inland park in the United States. Uh, when Coleman Young became in office, my grandfather was one of the first men black men appointed. He ran the largest state in you know recreational park in the United States. I mean, bigger than Central Park, but nobody talked about it. And through that political uh, enhancement, my family showed me that there was an opportunity. And so I got into, uh, when I got into college, again, and when we talk about my fraternity, I'm a member of Phi Beta Sigma. It was a young brother by the name of Victor Green who actually said to me, Tony, I want you to come to a political meeting. I went to a political meeting. I got very cool with uh, Senator Carl Levin, who is now deceased. 
Uh, he was on the, um, you know, he was one of the top centers for over 40 years. He, uh, he sent me to the DNCC to get trained and I became a political operative. And right after that, that's where my mind was opened up on what we were missing. Um, you know, I thought black folks were really ingrained in politics. We really weren't. And I didn't understand that. Um, so I became a, 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 what they call a base vote director uh, for a lot of states during the Clinton administration, the both of his campaigns in 92 and 96. And people always ask me, so Tom, what was a, what's a base vote director? Well, guess what? That was the Democratic Party's way of calling us black folk. They used the word base vote. And, and so and so I had to explain to people what my job was. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm the brother here to explain to my people what the Democratic Party does. And so through there, the network was extensive on how I learned to move. And I didn't realize, and I read a book by Tip O'Neill years ago that said, all business is political. And I did not understand that. I was like, all business political until I read that man's book. And then I saw he was right. Politics and business are intertwined. And that's how I got into the lobbyist game. And I, and I used to understand, I used to talk to lobbyists all the time. I would say, man, what do you guys do? They say, well, I'm here to lobby on behalf of our agenda or the, the, the special interests of my clients and my clients pay me. And I was like, really? And then one of my boys became a lobbyist. And after that, I was like, you know what? We have really got to get into this game. So I tell a lot of young politicals, black young men right now in my fraternity and other organizations, I said, you know what? If you have an opportunity to go become a lobbyist, get a lobbying license, particularly in Florida, and what I tell a lot of young brothers in Florida, get a lobbying license. If you want to you change anything or be a part of these administrations for effective change, become a lobbyist. Learn how to play this game and really be integral into what is going on. Because unless you're in many of those rooms, you're not going to know what's happening. That's what's up, man. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I, I, I worked on a political act, uh, action committee, you know, years ago. Yep. Uh, not for a corporation it, it was astounding to me how much you learn and know about like how businesses and other groups influence what government legislation happens and like as you know a lot of times as minorities we don't know anything about it we don't even understand how that game is played well well speaking of and you talk about being on political action committee uh how many and i tell people this i have my little quiz i said was Obama a millionaire before he got in office or after? And people always like, no, he was rich before. And I tell them, no, he really wasn't. Obama got rich in office because what people didn't realize, the Federal Ele Election Commission allowed him to raise all that money. But because he was timed out as president and he couldn't run any other race, guess what happened to all his war chests? They gave it to him because they don't realize there's certain laws set up through the FEC that allow people to, you know, if you run for certain office, get access to your war chest. The other thing is to, as a lobbyist, lobbyist is one of the few individuals that can actually have a Rolodex of people that donate money to candidates. Remember, I was I was never wanted to be a, a, an elected official. I wanted to be a kingmaker. I'd rather be the guy behind the curtain because guess what? I, if I control the Rolodex of $5 million of donors, guess what? It's the best thing in the world. And I and I proved it one day because uh, Governor Jennifer Granholm, when she was running for the state of Michigan, she ran out of money. And I made a phone call to my boy, John Stryker, who owned the Stryker Corporation. I said, John, I'm about to send the governor up here to go come meet with you. Uh, I want you to write her a, a, a $100,000 check. And she was like, really, he can do that? I said, when you got, when you're a lobbyist and you got these relationships, yeah, I was the man with the database. You know, these are my boys. Now, you know, and so when he got up there, he said, Tony, I liked her. I wrote her a check for half a million. Mm. Done. Next thing I know, I'm getting a job with the governor because guess what? I'm the money man. That's pretty cool, man. That's real cool. And you probably either one of you know one of a handful of black people to doing it or maybe even the only one because you're the only one i know about uh as a black man that's doing that's doing that kind of work or yeah. has done that kind of work i should say yeah so what made you look internationally uh like to really kick off uh, to really kick off your um your credit card business like you could have you know started something domestic but you went international why was what was the appeal there i'm glad you asked um anything in business you learn this do you would you rather be a goldfish in a shark tank or a shark in a goldfish bowl? And let me explain the difference. The difference is if I'm a young black man trying to go up and compete against white boys at our Silicon Valley that have hundreds of millions and millions of dollars being thrown at them for the most ridiculous ideas, but because the color of their skin can get a paycheck and they can make the money and do whatever, imagine trying to go play that game. It doesn't really work. 
But internationally, when I have no competitors, an open market, and have the ability to make mistakes, but also uh, target a market that is underserved, it's tremendous. Imagine I was, I talked to, I've talked to white VCs all the time when I was telling them about the mirror. I said, yeah, I'm creating the first mobile banking app and of international cross-border use. You know what they always say? Why do we need that? I said, well, you know why you need it? Because Haitians can't get money. Dominicans can't get money. Right now, Western Union and MoneyGram is getting all the work. Rhea is getting all the paper. I said, I want to be in that game. And they said, well, what are you doing? What's your target? I said, you know what? I can target a half a billion individuals outside the United States that's moving over $98 billion in transactions. That's a lot of money, gentlemen. Trust me, and I don't have to compete with anybody that, that looks like, you know, typical United States Silicon Valley players. Was it a struggle to get this up and going? Absolutely. But uh, the reward is going to be huge because I get to do three things. I get to serve the underserved community. Two, I can potentially become a hero. And three, I make myself right for acquisition because I have a value that they haven't gone after this particular market. That is what's up, man. That is really what's up. So I guess just to just to kind of, uh, you know, end us off, uh, give me about give me, I don't know, maybe like two or three things because uh, you you know you're really dropping a lot of gems about the flow of money you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying money like give give me about two or three things that you've observed in your experience that people just don't even understand about how money works or about money period the key is money is cyclical that's what I tell people all the time money is going to be here one day it's going to move the next day the goal is to get into the flow of money any business or entity you want to get involved in, learn to how the money is flowing. And don't become a, what I call a, a, a grabbing a few crumbs off the table. No, learn to jump into the stream of things. Like right now, when you talk about money flow and international, and you mentioned Dominica, most people always ask me, well, Tony, why Dominica? Not Dominican Republic, why Dominica? Dominica is an island uh, populated by people that look like us. But Dominica has a 20-year moratorium, and they also have banking licenses. I was one of the first individuals with my, with my business partner to go over there and apply for a banking license. You know how I many black men own banking licenses? Very few. Outside the United States, that number is almost one to two. I knew the guys off the top of my head. I mean, we're talking, and it's not very expensive. You know, for the amount of money that the black community creates as a collective, we actually have enough money to build our own vertical networks internationally and domestically. And it utterly amazes me that our black owned banks are struggling because what they don't realize is they need to extend themselves to get in services that they're not currently in. Case in point, it's amazing how black owned banks do not get into remittance services. How can you not serve the Ethiopian community, the Nigerian community, the community that's in, 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 in Somalia? What, what makes you think there's only money in Chicago and New York and, and, and LA, but not cross-border? You know, Africa right now is moving so much money, it's ridiculous. Africa right now got, got 17 other countries trying to buy for that dollar. And so right now, Africa alone is moving close to $128 billion annually in money movement. They, they, they leapfrog the technology we currently have. Everything they do is mobile, you know, through Safaricom, through MTN, through Altis or Orange Network. I know because I'm dealing with these individuals, but they're still looking for connections and relationships to the United States. Because again, as we talked about early on, the U.S. dollar is still powerful. It's still a status symbol. But a lot of us don't know how to play that status symbol. You know, we worried about Nike and Gucci. Uh-uh. No, I, I like, you know, Jackson is still cool. Ben Franklin still roll, roll with them boys. But just learn to get in the game so you know how to move them like everybody else moves them. That's what you got to do. That's what's up, man. Definitely appreciate you coming on the show, man, and dropping these gems. Thank you so much. Awesome, man. That's all I got right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, man, just taking in because that's, you know, that's one of my favorite subjects is talking about is how to move money and how yeah. to make money and how, not necessarily how to move money, but how the process of money works. You know, it just, it's fascinating all this, this information passing along about um, how internationally things are going. So I'm just here just sucking it all in and just trying to, you know, just trying to learn everything, what's, what's going on. So I appreciate the knowledge. No, I appreciate you. And one of the things I would like to encourage and tell brothers to do, I tell people all the time, you know, you, you see investment groups putting together investments for real estate. That's typically the number one business we get into in the black community. We get into real estate. We want to flip houses. We want to buy cars and flip cars. I get that. 
But what we don't do is invest in the next generation. I tell most of my investors or my partners, and it's the reason why I want to get into the bank is I want to get into the venture capitalist game. I want to get into the VC game. And people always ask me, why venture capitalists? You know, there's one thing to work and there's one thing to work with others as they produce. And so imagine if the four of us are on this phone call, we each had $25,000, that's $100,000. Do you realize we actually can invest in a young group of individuals that is out there and putting money behind them and putting our expertise and wisdom in those younger individuals that may be between the age ranges of 25 and 35 and say, guess what, young men and women, we're gonna finance your business. But we're going to bring you our attorneys. We're going to bring you our accountants. We're going to bring you our marketing infrastructure and consulting. And we're going to make you a successful business. And when you become a successful business, we're going to own a piece of you until you are successful. And then we're going to take your company either public, get you additional funding, or we're going to take it to the point, if your business has any failures, we're going to take your concept and then allow it to somebody else to utilize it at another point in time where they may have a better traction because you may not be as dedicated as we would like you to be. And the reason I tell people all the time and get into the V, game is because that's the only way we're going to build generational wealth in our community by investing in those that want to get in the game. It's not enough that we can do about ourselves. It's still going to take that community, but it's also going to take capital. And we got to learn not to be scared with the money that we have to invest in the next generation because some great ideas have come about. But again, money's cyclical. And I'll, and I'll end on this point. You know, everybody's excited that Jay-Z and Kanye and all these guys are billionaires. But guess what? If there's nobody behind them and there's no vertical that they're a part of, guess what? It doesn't matter because white banks and white and white institutions are going to get that money back and then there's nobody going to be behind them. Because guess what? That, that's just money placed with them today. But eventually, we're all going to go on to the higher room. There's going to be an opportunity where, guess what? Their wealth won't bounce around because typically what typically find in our Black community is the second generation don't typically care what the first generation did to obtain that wealth. So that's going to be a problem. So Kanye kids or, or, or Jay-Z's daughters and them, guess what? They're going to blow up cars, bars, stars, and clothes. They're not going to worry about building establishments and infrastructure that's going to keep that money moving and growing. You know, it's funny you say that because I was talking to a brother about a week ago that says, you know, you, you talk about generational wealth every week. And I'm the recipient of generational wealth where my family basically gave, they had beach houses, plenty of money. And they said no one cared about it. All they did was blow it. So mm -hmm. when we're talking about the importance of generational wealth, I mean, you know, it's a process. It's a lifestyle. You know, you're investing, you're saving this money for the next generation. But the brother that I had on last week, he said his he has uh, businesses and his kids have no interest in running the businesses. Exactly. So what advice would you give to brothers that say, listen, you know, generational wealth in my eyes, in their eyes, they feel like it's just a financial advisor or accountant's gimmick to get some more money out of you. Let's hear it. As I'm glad you said that. And this is where it comes to the brand and relationship. I don't have a son. I'm 52 years old. I don't have a son. I have a beautiful daughter that's 22. My daughter's not interested in my business. So what I said, if I want to keep the generational wealth going, I want to go out and, and each one teach one. My goal is to is create 10 millionaires. That is my goal. That's my generational path. I want to create 10 millionaires. If I'm going to become a billionaire, it's about me passing it down. It's the power of 10. You know, uh, Ed Koch wrote a book years ago and said, my, my job as, a, as the mayor of New York is to create 12 Jewish millionaires. And guess what? That's what he did before he left off. He didn't care about the streets, didn't care about garbage, didn't care about the police. He made 12 Jewish millionaires. And I saw the same exact thing um, uh, by case in point, when I was in Detroit, there was a gentleman by the name of Don Barton. If you don't know who Don Barton is, Barton was one of the first black men to own a cable company. He owned Barton Vision. It was bought out by uh, Comcast and all that years ago. But Barton was also vying for a casino. When the casino gaming licenses came to the city of Detroit, I was one of the few, few individuals that worked on that legislation. But Don Barton wasn't granted a casino license because what he didn't do, he didn't create others around him. He didn't make others around him wealthy. He was the one, the man with all the money, but guess what? Everybody around him, when it came to buy, putting together a casino for $100 million, guess what? He's the only one that had it, but he had all these individuals around him, but nobody had money. So he was not able to be successful. So I said to myself, I said, you know what? Before I make the next leap, I need to create individuals that's going to keep my legacy going because I don't know when my ticket's going to come and I go see the, the, the man upstairs. So guess what? I'm going to teach the best brothers I can that's dedicated to believing what I believe in, and I'm going to show them. Passing on information is the most wealthiest thing anybody can do. And that's when I found Brandon. Me and Brandon didn't know each other for matter. My frat brother moved in here by whim, and me and him just kind of clicked and kicked it. And from there, I pulled him to the side. I said, you know what? If you want to learn what I know, I'm going to teach you. 
Only thing I ask is that you pass it on. Don't be selfish with it because guess what? If we don't pass it on, it's going to stop. It's going to be a blockage. I don't like bottlenecks. It's got to be a flow. So I'm going to teach you to be successful and you teach the next several men down. Help me achieve my goal of creating these 10 millionaires. That's a legacy. That's generational wealth. You know what I mean? And then what we teach those brothers is, guess what, bro? It ain't about the girls and it ain't about the cars. It ain't about this. It's about building the infrastructure so it lasts a lifetime. Learn to change the game. Don't learn to play the game. Mm, great information, man. Let's jump back into Namiro because when I was talking to uh, Brandon and Denzel, they basically were supporting veterans, minorities, and small business owners. You know, you're on the international side of things. So, you know, for brothers that say, well, listen, I'm not military. Can I still get involved with the international corporation? Absolutely. And that's the reason why we built it. The thing about the military and what people didn't understand is that we have expatriates all over the world, ex-military that have served our country well. And they kind of just got, you know, where they are. I met these brothers in many places, whether it be Korea, Germany, uh, Dubai, Bahrain, you know, even in Africa, in Dominican Republic. Um, so I said I wanted to create something that made sense and give back because what tends to happen is most veterans, like most ex-cons, ex are just, you know, they, they do their time. And guess what? They don't really know what to do next. It's like when we flee the slaves in 1865, you free, free to go do what? You know, if I've been holding a gun on the front line of Afghanistan, it's hard to turn that into how do I build a, a multi-million dollar business? I mean, you can't take, you know, gunslinging and shooting to how do you do business on, on today's global scale? So I said, you know what, what we need to do is, is provide services, infrastructure, and information to individuals that have the aptitude and the, and, the, and the foresight to jump in this game. And there's a lot of us that are doing it. Like I said, don't knock anybody, knock any man for what he has done. Talk about what he can do tomorrow. Like I said, and, and you all can probably attest to this, you know, some of the, um, you know, I'm from the streets just like everybody else. Some of the best minds I've ever met in the world was the guys that was, you know, was running trap houses. The problem is they had the right attitude, wrong product. They just didn't realize on the vertical, get next to Escobar. Don't get next to the guy that was supplying you. Get on the plane. Understand what's happening in the, in, in, in the game. And that's all I mean by saying, you know what? Let's offer these people an opportunity for a vertical that makes sense. If they may not can work for Namiro, but maybe they can work for Namiro Bank. If they can't work for Namiro Bank, then maybe we have one of the affiliate relationships these gentlemen can be a part of because they do have the wherewithal to be successful in somewhere in our network. Definitely. And speaking of networks, you know, uh, we're talking about the artificial intelligence of brothers telling me, you know, I'm worried that my job may be replaced by artificial intelligence. You know, you spoke about uh, banking investments, you spoke about venture, cap venture capitalism, mm -hmm. but for the brothers that fear that AI may take over their job or their career, what other avenues that brothers can get into that, you know, that way they don't have to worry so much about the AI, if you will. What? It's so funny you say that. That is, that is a such a fallacy. That's your that's the United States preaching that. Let me tell you, which is hilarious to me. Um, again, when you travel around the world, eighty percent of what is going on in the world ain't AI enabled. Trust me. You know, you know, fishing, picking cotton, you know, cornfields, you know, bananas, coffee growing on trees off half of mountains. Ain't no computer going to do none of that. No, no, no. It's a lot of businesses that are still in the world that we can be a part of. I tell people, yeah, go learn a trade. One of the trades is still critical. One of the biggest businesses internationally is still, believe it or not, in the Dominican Republic, haircuts. Haircuts, a Dominican haircut, or like you've talked to a lot of ladies, hey, ladies want that Dominican blower style because it is what it is. You know, these are trades that are not going to go away. Computers aren't going to solve everything. Remember, what, what, what people are talking about is trying to make their industry more conducive so they can make money faster and more contrite and, and more profitable. But the reality is, you know, you just can't get rid of everyone. It's not going to happen. AI is going to be 10 years, if not 20 years away. I mean, case in point, here it is, 2023, we're supposed to be having flying cars we're just now getting ev cars think about it and even ev is still inefficient because how many of us want to go sit at a, at, a, at a station and plug in a car and sit in your car for 45 minutes to an hour wait on to get it charged up that's way uh, we don't think like that and so no banking may get faster certain things may become more expedient but to say the black community especially for the businesses that we're in we're going to be fine if we just learn to concentrate and get into the verticals 
that we can own and control. If you're in the if you're in the real estate game, well, let's start buying cement companies. Let's start buying the screw company. Let's start buying the companies that build the power tools. Let's start buying the companies, the trucking industries. Let's get in the game in other ways that we cannot be eliminated. Because when you own the entire vertical, you can't be eliminated from something that's being brought in just to be a think tank. Gotcha. And are there any other investment areas that, you know, like we always talk about the stocks, the, um, you know, real estate, you know, banking, this is a newer one on it's our show, but one. yeah, definitely. I'm loving it, but I'm just saying inside of banking, are there any, what investment opportunities are in banking or even if there's just in other areas that, that we're not looking at? Yeah. I, I tell people all the time, um, you know, the international, the inter and, and even in real estate, even the international real estate game is strong. And that's why I tell people, learn to create what we call real estate investment trusts or what you've heard REITs. REITs work outside the United States very well because the majority of the world don't have eminent domain. And people don't understand what I mean. International, in the United States, we deal with statutory law. That means the government can come in, create eminent domain. When they want to get rid of a black neighborhood, they can just come in and create legislation. And guess what? That neighborhood's gone. Out, bye bye. Case in point, if you're if you're from Florida, you have your Edenville. Edenville had the highway built right over it. <laughs> That's eminent domain. They don't need it. They don't think about it. Keep it moving. But in other countries, we deal in common law. Common law is contractual law from one business or one person to another person. And so there's billions I've been around the world that if we get into real estate investment trust, we can own property and sustainable wealth for generations that don't even have to move because you could buy a piece of land and because the government can't take it, that means it sits there in perpetuity. You know, that's a great thing. And people don't realize that. Like what I didn't tell brothers right now, and, and I'm gonna tell you something so funny, you know, people always talk about Haiti, and I and I really bothers me that the black community has really bought into this crap. You know, Haiti is probably one of the best investments in the world. People don't realize that the Clinton Foundation have gotten rich off Haiti, and if you don't realize that they're spending millions of dollars, there's an oligarch there, and yeah, the government screwed up. But if, imagine if several investors went into Haiti and bought property. Some of the most beautiful real estate in the Caribbean is in Haiti, and it's cheap, cheap. You can build a house in Haiti for 150 bucks. So imagine if we went in there and start building neighborhoods that we're accustomed to doing and selling those houses back to Haitians that can afford it, we ourselves will be creating new opportunities for those that will enhance their communities and also get rich in the process. Right now, I'm doing business with my Namiro platform with several banks. And the first thing they always ask me is, Tony, once we get Namiro up and running, we bring you your you know, two, three million clients. Can you help us build houses? They ask me that all the time, but I'm not a real estate guy. So I have to come out and tell other people, I said, brothers, I need you to get in the real estate game. If you're in it, get an investment group put together. You don't want to travel, no problem. Appoint one of your appointees, send them overseas. Come buy real estate in these other countries, Jamaica, you know, Aruba, Curacao, you know, St. Martin. Get in the game because there's an opportunity. Africa, as we talked about Ghana, I've been to Africa. Africa is blowing up. But I'm telling you, in a minute, you ain't going to be able to buy a piece of jungle over there if we don't get over there because it's going like gangbusters. And that's the game we want to play. So I tell people right now, start forming these investment groups. Just take your little tools and fuse, your $150, $250, and put this money together and start looking at opportunities. Read the newspaper, see what's going on, but look at the things that are going on outside the U.S., not just things that's going on in the U.S. Definitely. As far as research goes, you know, for brothers that say, okay, I would love to check out properties in Dominican Republic. Like what type of research or what avenues can brothers get that they can actually do the research for themselves. Believe it or not, the best resource, how I learned about the world, <laughs> um, on cable, BBC. Yeah, you know about BBC, uh, the British broadcasting company? from the best news in Al Jazeera. I watch Al Jazeera and BBC because what they do, they tell you the truth. And so they tell you really what's going on. And then I, once I see something I like or a country that I like, I then go and discover on, you know, through research, what opportunities are there? You know, I look at, is there an English newspaper, somebody that speaks English to understand. And then typically in those English newspapers, they talk about investments because every country outside the United States, believe it or not, has an office of foreign investment. I tell brothers all the time, make that one of your stops on your trip. Go see what the offer of foreign investment have. Case in point, when I came to the Dominican Republic, they handed me a book about this big of all the investment opportunities that they would like to see. And I just started going through them. And I've done that through every country I've ever went to. And then just see the investments. And they'll tell you, it could be as small as building a road to putting together a new airport or 
just buying a, a building for three or four houses to do some Airbnb. And this was before Airbnb got big. But yeah, that's what they're talking about. These countries want to have foreign investors come in and help them become better entities. And we get an opportunity to be protected financially and also build some wealth that we can bring back to our fans and family on this side of the, the ocean. Uh, I, I, I'm swear, I, I don't think I heard you correctly. You said you can get property for $150? Is yeah. that what I heard? Or am I just hearing things? Uh-huh. You can get a property for hundred and fifty dollars. Absolutely, yeah. People, I don't know what, what people do. Tell my prices. Yeah, the average house in Haiti is only hundred fifty bucks. You can build it because they build it block by block. You just buy your little piece of land and you build it block block by block. You just buy a bunch of cinder blocks and just build a darn thing. And you don't have to pay taxes on it as long as you don't paint it. Believe it or not, that, I mean these are little tricks of the trade. Yeah, and you were talking about you know the office of uh, foreign affairs. It's you, it's funny because I saw on your bio. Uh, you know, you were worked for the Office of Foreign Affairs for the president of the Dominican Republic. So, Correct. so my question for you is, you know, my brother asked you with the political side, but going back, you know, using your contract relationships with Coca-Cola, Pepsi, how does that aid in having those conversations? I'm glad you asked. This is the secret no one tells you. Again, outside the United States, Black men are valued. I've gotten in more rooms because I was black than, in, than I was American. And I'm gonna tell you a case in point. When I was in Abu Dhabi, I, got, I met 15 of the African leaders. And the first thing they would tell me is that brother, we're so happy to meet you. We never get to see a black man do business with us. We always see the white boys, which they call cowboys. We always see these cowboys come talk to us, but you, we can do business with. And it scared me because I had never heard that before. Because we always are taught in America, we're beat down. Black men don't know business. You don't know this. But not realizing the rest of the world looks like us. Those leaders don't have an equivalent of a white man over them. They have us. And so they were looking, what they were looking for is our expertise that we learned in our American schools and universities on our American streets on how to do business to bring to them and apply it. They were that serious on how things were going. And so I've learned to twit, like I said, I'm a C student. All I did was learn through the government how the opportunities laid out. And these guys were opening up the doors for saying, what can you help us do? I've been offered everything from, from gun contracts to lumber contracts. In Ghana, they offered me gold. In Cape Verde, they offered me a, a lumber deal, the things I had never heard. I'm like, you want me to put together 17 metric tons of lumber? Wait, wait. They say, we'll give it to you. You know what that looks like? You know, they was giving me half a country and it was valued at almost, you know, three and a half billion dollar deals. And that's how these guys talk across the world. But because we're not in those rooms, we think we get to hear these conversations from the white perspective, not realizing our expertise is just as valuable. And many of us have a higher level of education than many of these white boys going in these rooms and talking to these folks. These white boys out there tricking them. We actually going to bring something to the country and the culture, which is totally different. And that's what these people are appreciating. Wow. Wow, man. Yeah, I heard you was good, but damn. <laughs> yeah, I got a couple more before I let you get out of here, man. You know, I, I kind of want to get back on the app side of things. You know, yep. when, uh, you know, I already asked you about setting up the app, but uh, from like merchant processing, things yep. of that sort, because I've heard brothers say, I, I want to make this app, but they had issues with the processing Correct. areas of it where they, so Give brother some some merchant processing game, brother, because you know you're the banking expert. And I, I want to say you're probably the the first banking expert we've had. I mean, we've had accountants on the show, but you're a banking expert. That ain't the same. So go ahead, no brother. Problem. I'm 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 glad you asked that because when it comes to merchant processing, merchant processing is controlled by banks. So when you swipe your credit card through those little machines, or you swipe them online through a through a PayPal or something like or even Stripe. That is actually a bank that's saying we're allowing that transaction to go through. That is a company in the middle charging a fee to allow that process to happen. That's a processor. They have a license to do that. We're talking the reason why many of us don't get approved is because those processors can charge, approve, or deny anybody they want to without any requirements. It's you're at the mercy of these individuals. So they can say, yep, if you're a high risk individual because say you are you own a barbershop and you got a lot of chargebacks or you're in a neighborhood they consider a lot of fraud, they'll say, you know what? Typically uh, we charge a 2% processing fee, but for you guys to be in business for us, we're gonna charge you 4%. 
You know, they, they want their money or we'll make you have a reserve. So what I've done, I've gotten into game and I've said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to become my own international acquirer, which means that's the same as a processor. So I can learn to process payments for black owned businesses, because one of the things, because there is no black owned processor in or for the black community, we are at the mercy of the white banks. And so guess what? Nobody's processing or caring about the black dollar, but guess the millions and billions and billions of dollars going through it, it's going to these white owned banks. None of us own any of that. As I said, none of the black owned banks are processors. They don't have the licensing, they don't have the banking capabilities and they don't have the technology infrastructure. That's what I'm looking to change and looking to do. Same thing with cards. That's a real critical piece. If we can issue our own cards and process our own cards, guess what? You've created a vertical, so now you've capsulated and insulated the amount of money that's moving through your community. That's what every other community has done. We're just the only ones last at the table because, again, when we were studying, we studied how to get in the game. We didn't understand how to play the game. Like I said, I'd rather be Robert Kraft than Tom Brady. People always ask me, they say, why is that? Well, Robert Kraft, owned the, he owned the Patriots. Tom Brady just played for him. Mm, okay okay and i got one more question for you brother did you enjoy yourself on black men sundays man i had a ball i've been looking forward to this people will always ask me you know how come you don't talk about the mural you're probably one of the first brothers man you should be on black enterprise or black fortune or ebony or jet or whatever to talk about it the reason i haven't done this is because i'm waiting to make this a successful one thing about the black community believe it or not i've went to over 1,500 Black folks that I know in my network, and only about 300 of them actually invested with me, believe it or not, because I want to do this differently. I want to do friends and family. I wanted to have some brothers get in the game, because I said I want to make those 10 millionaires, you know, and so the other 1,200 said, man, I don't believe it's going to happen, and why they didn't do it. I'm like, who is they? You know, stop with this day thing. We're just as intelligent. Take that out of your vocabulary. We can do things just like anybody else. I said, uh, you know what? And the reason I haven't gone and put it on wide affair yet is because one thing about Black people, we don't, we don't believe in something unless we see, touch, or feel it. You know what I mean? It's got to be done already, and then we believe it. And so I've had investors have actually said to me, Tony, man, I'm going to invest with you, man. Soon is up and going and ready to roll, man, I got you. But here's the thing, gentlemen, if you come on board when it's like that, it's too late. I don't need you then. You know, then I become, well, whoops, you missed the boat. And all too often we missed the boat. So like I said, this was an honor for me because it's probably one of the first interviews I've decided to do to speak to people that look like me. Because like I said, I feel this will be a valued conversation and not one is just thrown to the side because it's like, whoop, is somebody else doing another thing? No, I want to be able to be able to drop some knowledge. And this is for prosperity state. Like you said, in the event that my Lord and Savior takes me away, man, this is recorded somewhere. So again, hopefully my legacy or the generational knowledge that I have can be passed on. And through perpetuity, it can be through you guys. And I just want to thank you for that. Definitely. And thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate all the wealth that you had. Uh, Brandon told me you were sharp, but I was like, okay, oh, this brother came <laughs> with it today. So I appreciate you for coming on Black Men's Sundays. My man, Kalali, he got a master's in public policy. I see him shaking his head, showing up too. So that's how I know the show's great. And uh, thanks for coming on Black Men's Sunday, Anthony Simmons. We appreciate you and enjoy your week, brother. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Y'all have a great time. It's a Black Men's Black man.